Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon and through Patreon join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites. And the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care hey how's it going so uh, you know coincidentally enough uh, one of the things that came up in our last episode was um, a discussion of Richard Florida which by coincidence our guest today is booked to talk about RJ Koselniak if you don't mind introducing yourself and letting people know who you are yeah uh, well first of all thanks for the uh, invitation uh, I always appreciate an opportunity to to kind of unpack Richard Florida uh, I do some of that as the the spoof Dick Florida on Twitter although it's my, my contributions are fairly irregular now. Uh, I live in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I am a, a professor at a university in the region and I, I specialize in, in urban and regional planning, but also kind of thinking about how racism and capitalism shape the built environment. Uh, what, like who gains, who loses? And I, I'm sort of a product of the American Midwest. I grew up in St. Louis, uh, Akron, Cleveland, uh, some time in Kentucky. Uh, so this is sort of the region that I care about, but also the region that I'm, I'm most interested in in kind of understanding like how it relates to these these regional and national and global trends around capital and labor and, and how land is used. You know, um, something interesting about Richard Florida thing, I'll just give you a context of how it came up. We were talking about the whole digital nomad thing mm-hmm. and the and the motivation thing where there's all these people who kind of buy into this idea I can work on my laptop and work anywhere. This is before the whole the whole COVID right, right. thing. Yeah, you know, the Tim Ferriss, the um uh, I think it's the guy Kawasaki, I think is his name. This whole idea you can just um disengage right. from the office and do all that stuff. And I guess brought up how now com- compounded with the rise in remote work due to COVID, um, a lot of people are kind of doing their own little Richard Florida thing where, hey, I'm just going to um, set up um, anywhere I want. And I think, right, I, yeah. yeah, I think two things. If you could just tell people who Richard Florida is, and I also want to talk about real quick, if he, um, if in a post-COVID world, his um, theories matter more, less, or makes no difference. Well, I, I mean, my my first uh, interaction with the uh, the kind of work of Richard Florida is actually quite an embarrassing story. Uh, I was on a road trip from Columbia, Missouri, where I was completing my my undergraduate degree, and must have been 2005, 2006. And uh, my friend and I stopped 
in Pittsburgh, and we decided we were going to visit the Andy Warhol Museum, which, by the way, if you're in Pittsburgh, you should definitely check out. Uh, you spend 20 bucks and you get to see uh, pretty much uh, Andy Warhol's in entire collection, all of his work, and he was from Pittsburgh. And so, you know, I, I descended into the basement and I and then, you know, saw the sort of final exhibits, walked up into the gift shop, uh, and I saw this book that said, it titled The Rise of the Creative Class by Richard Florida. Little did I know that Richard Florida uh, was sort of work, was a, a kind of a native of that region. I mean, he, he he's very particular about his Newark roots, but also his kind of mid-Atlantic industrial roots. Uh, and that he was working as an industrial economist uh, kind of in this region. Uh, you know, he, he had spent a lot of time uh, in the Pittsburgh area. And I remember picking it up and and just the title itself, right, makes you feel good. Uh, if you if you consider yourself a creative, right, it's, it's sort of... Uh, uh, alerting you to your importance and, and significance. Uh, and so that was sort of my first connection. And I remember, uh, you know, not being sure of what I wanted to do with my career and opening it up and seeing a bunch of tables and graphs and being like, well, this isn't that interesting. I thought this was going to be like a theory of power and theory of development. And I kind of slotted it away. And it wasn't until maybe 2008, 2009, where I got really serious about how does urban redevelopment work? And I kept seeing this name and it occurred to me like, oh, wait, I've I tried to engage with that before. Uh, worked through some of those theories and found them just so insufficient for capturing what it is that I grew up around, right? Around in St. Louis, you know, in Akron and Cleveland and, and see these sort of unstable places uh, that aren't necessarily competing with the the Seattles uh, and the, the Bostons and DCs and Austins, right? They're like, if you insist that talent now is, is free to, to go wherever it wants, right? You mentioned the digital nomad. If talent can flow anywhere it wants, what does what that, how does that position cities like Detroit, right? How does that position cities like Cleveland or Cincinnati that have struggled with being able to create the amenities that are supposed to then attract that nomad? Uh, and just one other part on the nomad, you know, what I, what I find so interesting about the way that we've been framing this is that it's about maximum liberty, right? Like you have a laptop, you've got, you know, the, the classic creative brain, you're entrepreneurial, you know, being able to work anywhere, work whenever you want is actually like the height of freedom. But I think it's pretty clear that it's actually, <laughs> in many cases, the opposite. Because what you end up doing is never being able to draw distinctions between your labor and your life, your entire life then has to be constantly monetized, right? It constantly has to be in relationship to these large companies that are willing to pay for your creative output. And so I think while we keep talking about like this easy flow of capital uh, or easy flow of labor, uh, sort of seeking out the next job, it's actually less free than it would be if maybe you worked for a traditional corporation or, or a larger business that could provide uh, uh, those supports and, and, and those, those contracts. Like one thing that comes up in a lot of these articles and and commentary on this stuff is is how is how flexibility is mm -hmm. kind of a trap along with the word freedom. Like there's all these ways that these things get repackaged and uh, disguised as mm -hmm. you know good things. So it's like, hey, you have freedom to be anywhere you want, but you know you end up being in a handful of of places, you know, that uh, kind of cater to this, you know, cool city idea. And then the flexibility thing is just another way to hide our precariousness. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. yeah, flexibility usually means um, no one place is giving you work. There's no, in there's no health insurance. There's, um, you're expected to be reached at any time and be ready to work. You know, like a lot of this stuff is 
euphemis- euphemistic. You know, this this micro gig economy is very much way to hide a worsening a worsening deal. There's something very libertarian about all of it, from the um, Richard Florida to the Tim the Tim Ferriss part. Right. I mean, I think you 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 you've hit it right on the head. Right. That that. You know, we we can assign a lot of meaning and value to the term flexibility, right, or the slash economy. But actually, what does that what does that notion of freedom, right, or eman- like emancipation or liberty actually disguise? And I remember I lived in I lived in Portland, Oregon for for a couple of years, uh, and you know I, I voluntarily went there, and I, had a, I met a lot of really important people in my life. But something I couldn't get over that was so much different from St. Louis City is the way that. That sense of flexibility and that sense of the slash economy, and I'm just going to assemble enough sources of income so that I can own a bike and and purchase food from a food pod. That 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 was being repackaged as the the kind of height of, like a quality of life, right? Or sort of minimalism, right? That it was like I am austere. I only assign value to these small set of things. Like I need my bike. I need a job. Uh, I need to be able to see concerts. And it felt like we were we were sort of building up in this country, right? Because Portland, for many ways, in many ways, is, is meant to be a vision of the future, right? For a progressive city, right? For the sustainable city, that we were building up to something breaking, right? That the sharing economy wasn't about sort of decentralization or democratization. It was that somebody else actually held all of those products and all of that capital, and they were willing then to share the work to maintain it, right? It wasn't really much different than. Uh, you know, kind of a traditional model, right? A traditional corporate model, but it had been packaged to, to, to mean that like you could tie your freedom to it. And I, I taught a class last night, uh, my, my comprehensive planning class at the university I, I teach at, and uh, we were talking about the single, uh, uh, you know, the single family home, right? And how the single family home is considered like the height of American freedom, right? Like our built environment regionally looked like no one else for most of the 20th century. Right? We encourage flight from cities. We encourage segregation uh, in terms of lending, in terms of homeowners associations, who could live where. But we still tied it to this idea that if you can get your home and you can have access to a highway, that that's freedom. You are away from the scuffle and, and bombast of the city. But you really look into it, right? And I, I'm, I'm sort of reiterating what other uh, <laughs> smarter people have said. But if you think of then about what that idea of freedom actually disguised, Right. That like black Americans were not allowed to live in these places Uh, or, uh, you know, low income people are not allowed to live in these places Uh, or that even the people that resided in the home with with oftentimes white male breadwinner, the, the woman who was included in that was actually excluded from having a public life. And so all of these ideas in the United States about freedom and liberty are always the process of contradictions. Right. That that the more free you are, oftentimes that means. Uh, that somebody else is benefiting from your your efforts or or your your wage uh, or your production, or that in the process of liberating, you're actually smashing somebody, right? You're making it more difficult for someone else to be able to to rise up through. Uh, I mean, this dream, right, of mobility. Yeah, and you know, there's a passage. Um, there were a couple articles you recommended me to read because yeah. I'll tell I'll tell how I came to this is. Uh, Confession time, I bought the book unironically too in the 2000s. I just never read it. Like, you ever have one of those books that 
just kind of sits around your house. Like like in New York, it's a power broker for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for me, for uh-huh. some reason, it was the creative class book because I bought the book and I bought it unironically because I found it um, interesting and I thought it was like a wave of the future. And I also thought, oh, uh, and this was uh, pretty silly, but I was young at the time and I thought, oh, this is a... This- a, a lifestyle design almost book like what you have to do to be employable which right I, yeah I, I don't think i was wrong about but that's not a good thing uh but you know i thought oh i mean i, yeah. I think that's a, a that, that suggests just the power of the branding right i mean i think we we it's a it's a strange it, we want that sort of we want to a feel creative because we you know so much of the sort of american society is now moving into these these practices of like innovation disruption ingenuity creativity and we want to be a part of that but then actually then like what what is that scheme right like what's be what's beyond just the the branding one one of the phrases that i i use a lot in the dick florida character which uh, for for a long time i was pretty uh, devoted to uh, it was an interesting way to kind of uh, you know, both spoof what it means to be an urbanist while also spoofing what it means to be uh, an academic. And I've increasingly appreciated that convergence. But I will say, you know, that that book is one of the very early versions of what I call pop urbanism, right? We've had pop psychology, you know, we've had, you know, all these different kind of mainstream pop approaches to these questions. And for many years, I think that urban development was treated as this like kind of opaque Byzantine, like, well, in the 50s and 60s, we did a bunch of bad stuff. And then there was community organizing. And, you know, maybe you've seen the documentary about the neighborhood in Boston that that recovered, but it was always kind of treated as this technical process, right? Or political process that was not rooted in the lives of of individuals. And so I think what Florida did, and, and in some ways, this is this is a testament to his, I mean, his vision, right? The, like his 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 ability to kind of forecast trends, which is something that he kind of worked on in, in his career, is think is the way he was able to to know that there was an appetite for being told that living in cities was what you should be doing and that cities should be changing themselves for you, right? That they should be changing their approaches, changing the way that they think about themselves uh, regarding talent and tolerance. Uh, ways of, of thinking about their policies so that it was targeted specifically to those graduates of the University of Texas, Austin, right? To specifically to the graduates of the University of Chicago. And that the more you could kind of sell that group of people on their importance, uh, the more books you would sell, right? And then the more lectures you could give. And you basically create this cottage industry, industry that I call uh, pop urbanism, right? That there's no depth there. It's not about uh, you know, poverty and inequality and injustice and about how capitalism shapes these places or how history shapes these places. It essentially, uh, as you mentioned, right, this kind of libertarian, like, you matter, right? You might as well read it as a companion piece to Ayn Rand early on, right? Like, you matter. You are misunderstood. You are creative, and there's a city that will understand you. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole there's a whole kind of ethos around it where uh, I think a lot of people kind of uh, viewed it as an oasis when it really was its own kind of trap because this came out this was big in the 2000s and it's mm-hmm. hard to really make people understand who weren't there I mean who, or who weren't adults yet at the time how big a deal um, this was and kind of taken for granted as a good mm-hmm. thing and also you know it came out around the time of four hour work week by Tim Ferriss which I also bought unironically mm-hmm. and they they meshed together <laughs> pretty well as far as this idea that all this stuff 
is actually freeing, but uh, there's this passage in this Jamie Peck article from 2005, yeah. which uh, predated the Tim Ferriss book by two years, but was very, um, the writing was on the wall. I mean, this passage, uh, I think, really dri- drives it home. The rise of the creative, the creative class has also attracted criticism for its relative neglect of issues of intra-urban inequality and working poverty. The swelling contingent economy of underlaborers may in fact be a necessary side effect of the creatives lust for self-validation 24-7 engagement and designer coffee observes that the overall tone of the book is unequivocally celebratory the possibility that there might be serious downsides to unrestrained workforce and lifestyle flexibilization strategies warranting no more than a passing if moralizing mention. The rise of the creative class both glorifies and naturalizes the contracted out quote-unquote free agent economy, discursively validating the liberties it generates and the lifestyle it facilitates for the favored class of creatives. Florida is inclined to revel in the juvenile freedoms of the idealized no-collar workplaces in this flexibilizing economy while paying practically no attention to the divisions of labor within which such employment practices are embedded. There is little regard for those who are on the thin end of Florida's thick labor markets beyond the forlorn hope that one day they too might be lifted, presumably acts of sheer creative will, into new overclass. And that's a lot to um, digest, <laughs> yeah. digest yeah. there. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a mouthful, but... Uh, Jimmy Peck is, is, is definitely one of the, the prose artists of the critical geography, <laughs> critical planning. That, that is his... He, he's also, uh, I mean, just three or four years ago, he gave a paper where he, he takes on Ed Glazer, who's another one of those kind of pop urbanism, uh, like Lord Shep, like, like top of their game at, at Harvard. And he uses very similar language to kind of deconstruct... But yeah, I mean, I think, you know... Uh, well, actually, wait. If you could hold on one second. I just realized the next sentence is actually pretty good, too. So I might as well just toss it in go, there. I already, for it. I already read a mouthful. There is <laughs> certainly no need for unions or large-scale government programs, creativity-stifling institutions that these are held to be, since Florida's vision of a creative meritocracy is essentially a libertarian one. And I thought that extra sentence was uh, worth throwing in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the... I mean, just just as a hypothetical, I mean, I'm not going to speak to any specific city that that took all this on, but I mean, imagine reading the the actual rise of the creative class and you are a city councilor in Akron, Ohio, right? You're a city that has been coping with basically 60 years of population loss. You're a city that has a crime rate that you consider sort of unappealing and unattractive to newcomers. The schools aren't, aren't, aren't supported. Right, you have uh, all these public amenities that you can't invest in because you you don't necessarily have the revenue. Uh, although I think now today we are recognizing that that that, that revenue is often tied to public safety, which then becomes its own scheme itself. But the the notion that you are you are one of these sort of you know young maybe visionary city councilors sitting on a smallish city uh, board, you read that you know you read that book and it's basically a recipe, right? Like you are reading that as whoa 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 whoa. What if we spend the money to rebrand, right? What if we spend the money to focus on our downtown? What if we spend the money to create those environments where that kind of person will flock to, right? Regardless of what we've actually had to deal with in a city like Akron or Toledo, right? Or East St. Louis, uh, you know, or Gary, like, regard, like, like ignoring the history that got us here. If somebody was to tell you that putting in a couple of bike lanes 
or having some professional artists graffiti alleys would drive your population and drive foot traffic and drive uh, uh, like new residents, why wouldn't you bite that, right? Like it's it's perfect, right? You get away from the un like the basically racist history of your community, right? Who could live where? You get away from problems around uh, unequal investment around uh, sort of inequitable distribution of public goods, right? You can basically ignore then those community organizers who have been saying, well, we'd really like it if the police stopped killing us, or we'd really like it if you invested in the schools. What you can say instead is, well, we're going to make downtown really attractive because it's the densest part of the city. And that's how we're going to compete with, drumroll please, New York City (laughs) or Chicago. Uh, And so what you've done is you're able to quiet dissent, right? And those challenges from a community, by saying the downtown matters, focus your attention on downtown, and it's a fool's errand, right? Like, there's no way that Akron is able to compete with Cleveland in that, and there's no way that Cleveland can compete with Chicago in that. So who's really benefiting from a process where you say, well, labor is now going to flow to whatever their lifestyle choices are, or whatever amenities are available, when we know for a fact that that labor is going to try, at least before COVID, right, was going to try to live in a handful of what Florida calls superstar cities, Right, New York, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, which we haven't even talked about yet, uh, and 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 Austin. You know, it'd be a good thing to do. Uh, I'm not sure if we've done this yet, but have we given like a super one-on-one, dumbed-down description of what Richard Florida is about? Like, I feel like talked about what he's about, but maybe not in a dumbed-down enough way for someone who has absolutely no idea what we're talking about. But I mean. I, is a fair way to say it. He's somebody who sold a type of pop urban planning idea of if you just hipsterize um, your city, they, meaning um, desirable workers and residents will come, then everything's going to get better in, right. your, in your city so, by how hipsterized it gets. So, so he is, uh, I mean, so basically what he did is he identified uh, like, a cor- like a correlation, right? In a variety of, if you, you know, in, in, in the rise of the creative class, he's basically making the argument that you can kind of predict what cities are going to be high growth or have high tech growth or, or sort of be, uh, you know, the, 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 the up and coming places or the more stable places based on the relationship to, uh, of, of kind of talent, tolerance and technology, right? So cities that are really focused on being able to attract talent. This is, this would be the kind of the, the creative people, right? The, the coders, the programmers, the artists, the graphic designers, uh, you know, I think increasingly there's a recognition that it's like, it's STEM. We might also call these people uh, knowledge workers uh, or, or, or white collar workers. It's interesting that we've rebranded them as creative, but then there's the question of tolerance. And this is something that we should, you know, probably address uh, later on. Uh, you know, the, the idea that a community that is more tolerant of difference then therefore uh, is able to grow. Uh, And the notion being for him, I mean, most of his early work was focused on LGBTQ. And if a city is more willing to to include that in the future of its city, right, like the future of its plans, that that's a driver uh, of of sort of growth. And then finally, a commitment to technology, right? That a city that is willing to, to recognize the importance of those kind of knowledge industries uh, that they're able to recognize how to leverage really powerful universities uh, to ensure that that there are bright people coming uh, to their town. Which is why you can also think about this as how those major universities then play a huge role. So Florida's sort of great case is Pittsburgh, 
which has Carnegie Mellon uh, and University of Pittsburgh, and then a bunch of, of, of very strong universities beneath it. And that those then became, in, in the sort of classic example, part of the reason why Google was an early investor in, in Pittsburgh, right? They bought up property and they were hiring students at CMU and graduates of CMU. And so this is sort of the, the, the way that, that talent tolerance and technology come together, right? That the university is, is, is really focused on high technology industries and high technology sectors, that that is going to bring in, uh, you know, these talented individuals. Uh, and then if the city is able to frame itself as being progressive, and we could bracket what progressive means in that case, that you're going to see that long-term growth. And so the question is that if a city wants to be able to replicate what may or may not have happened in Pittsburgh, depending on who you ask, how do they do that, right? How do they orient themselves towards that talent? How do they think about what tolerance means to them? And how do they leverage the available investments or institutions around technology? And the outcome for him, you basically have to make your city as amenable, right, or as attractive to those talented and creative people if you want to be able to trigger long-term growth. We, we should specify that, that at no point in any of what he writes is he really talking about sustainable, right? Like what we're, what we're seeing are these sort of spikes. And then when people aren't able to see the gains in their own lives or the stability or security in their lives, they tend to leave. Uh, now they don't leave en masse. We're not, we're not waiting for Portland to become the next St. Louis. But I think it's, it is important to specify that high-tech growth or the kinds of growth that he's describing is, is abrupt, right? It's, it's immediate. It's like, okay, this is now what we care about. How do we get people here? And how, what, how can we imagine ways of, of keeping them here? So that's sort of the rundown. It's the, those three T's. He's not really that interested in the consequences other than that, that cities will experience uh, <laughs> uh, sort of strong growth, right? And that the universities then or major institutions will take a much uh, harder or, or maybe uh, a much deeper responsibility for the future of a city because that's really the engine for him, right? Like, yeah. like the, the government goes away. <laughs> I, mean, I think you've noticed in a lot of what we've read that there's no, there's no government, right? The, the, the most important social unit is either the corporation, right? That does the employing or the university that does the, the educating and that it's the city's responsibility then to make sure that there are, amenities and laws and policies on the books that match the the preferences political or social of those individuals that come for those particular those particular industries. So it works a lot of different ways, but those are the big three, uh, the, the three T's of growth, as he's put it. And you know, also, there's not only very little government because all that stuff stifles, you know, growth and creativity, so to speak. But it's also, like the passage says, no real labor unions or anything, because that's something that's, you know, outdated. Right. You know, that's for factory workers. That's for your grandparents. What a bunch of squares, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh -huh. yeah, instead. But the thing that's kind of so ironic about all this is how much stuff has come full circle, because now you see story after story of staff writers at all these uh, places like Gawker and all these places, all these type of jobs that would have been considered the dream creative jobs, all embracing uh, unions now, all these right. um, so-called, like people are realizing, no, we do need government. Like the creative class is probably the biggest source now of uh, young socialists and agitators yeah. for more government and unions and all this stuff. When really the way that 
Florida seemed to describe it, um, they were all going to go in the uh, Tim Ferriss route, as in all these um, people were going to be just basically staff versions or freelance versions of what he described, you know, as a digital digital nomad. Like a lot of these kind of digital nomad, micro entrepreneurial type of stuff that Tim Ferriss was talking about, Florida to me seemed to be talking about that same type of libertarian type of mindset but within working for an organization so instead of being on a beach somewhere doing it you were in a so-called cool job uh or what i think they called in some of these articles no collar jobs where it's like hey i work for a big corporation but they have taco tuesdays and uh a ball, a ball play, a playroom with a ball right, pit, yeah. you know, and yeah. ping pong tables, you know, it's, it's so, it's so cool. It's, uh, not your mom's, um, right. cubicle. Right. I mean, and, and that's the, that's the, the, that's such an, it's a, it's a, such an, an important point that you make that, that, I mean, there's, we could call it libertarianism, but we could also call it, uh, crassly American, right? That, yeah. that this is taking the American doctrine of manifest destiny, of a kind of frontier mentality, of a, I'm going to to pull my boots up and I'm going to wander out there and I'm going to be in command of my life. I don't need interference from a from a union. I don't need interference from a corporation. I don't need interference from from uh, you know the, the the sort of classic workplace. And I think when when you see, I mean, the, you know, this theory that. That's moving away from the importance of of kind of raw materials, right? Of thinking about cities as places where you know large large amounts of resources are processed, right? So like the reason why Chicago exists is is tied to its ability to act as uh, a kind of uh, staging area for you know Western materials coming into the East. Or we can think about how cities dependent on having rivers, right, or bodies of water uh, around them because that could be considered a resource. And you know, I suggested that the, the Harvey piece about urban entrepreneurialism, you know, a lot of that then was, well, how do we get companies to come here, right? How do we start competing for companies and competing for tourism dollars? But if you flip that then into how do we compete for a specific kind of individual, what you've basically done by moving beyond the kind of classic industrial model or the classic corporate model is that you have far fewer opportunities for people actually to work together and your supply chains that feed in then to those communities are much more simple. So you can imagine why it is that in Detroit and a lot of, of Rust Belt cities, there are such such strong union communities. And it's because this was sort of a sprawling machine, right? Like, like basically if one part of the auto manufacturing industry in a, in a city like Detroit or Cleveland or, or even Toledo, if it got held up, that's production that, that can't happen. So the unions actually had a strong way to leverage their power, right? That this is this is an entire in, like like economy, like it's basically the Great Lakes economy. And then if you can halt it or cease it or slow it or stop it within that region, you're able then to actually leverage uh, uh, that that power for something. But how do you do that if you were a graphic designer, right, working uh, basically freelance for a magazine that you think may or may not exist in the next year? Like who do you go to? Right. And I promise you that if you say I'm going to like I'm going to contest my working conditions, I'm going to contest this exploitation. There is somebody else right behind you who, as part of this entire machine of creativity, believes that you are wasting your opportunity and that they're going to take advantage of it. Right. It just keeps the supply of of people who view themselves as these uh, like atomized individuals who can do the job, uh, who can bask in the freedom until they hit that, that really nasty reality 
you know, big or small corporations, these companies, right, whether they're startups or they're, they're Microsoft, they don't give a damn about whether or not your, your working conditions are, are, are conducive to your mental health, right, to your physical health. They don't care if it's, if it's conducive to your, your financial goals or a sense of, of financial security. And I think we're seeing all of that collide at the exact same moment, right? Like, because, yeah, yeah I mean, I think one of the dirty secrets is that a lot of creatives work in the service industry. One of their slashes is that they're a waitress or a bartender. So what happens if you've decided you have this really, really fragile balance, right? You can imagine the classic slash, uh, slash laborer in the United States in, in, 20, in, the, in the 21st century or, or in 2020, right before the pandemic. You know, you might work 25 hours a week as a bartender or a waitress or a waiter, right? Or as a bar back. Uh, but you might also, you know, make jewelry on the side and sell it on Etsy, right? Or maybe you do an OnlyFans, right? And you connect that, uh, right? This is all your... But what happens if the most stable part of that, right? The service economy shuts down. What happens, right? You you can't actually generate enough money by selling your 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 your, your products or your art or your, your your vintage clothes, and you can't make enough money doing an OnlyFans, right? Yeah. When yeah. you eliminate an actual stable source of income, suddenly being a slash worker is not sexy at all. Suddenly, it's like it's tragic. Right? Yeah. It's, this, it's, it's a solvent on, on society. If people can't actually, like a working society, if people can't actually uh, experience any stability. And, and something else is that it becomes a sexied up version. Instead of being an escape from these so-called um, terrible things, and I put terrible in the scare quotes, like unions and, and labor protections and big government, you know, instead of being a savior from these quote-unquote terrible, it actually becomes a reminder of uh, the conditions that those so-called terrible things were right. put yeah. there in the first place to protect you from. And on top of that, you start realizing that all this stuff is just a sexied up uh, version that they tricked you into going back to of all these um, terrible things that, you know, people like we've tried all this before, you know, where, yeah. uh, you know, in the beginning of the industrial revolution, the idea of, Hey, you're your own person undercut the guy next to you to get the job, uh, work whatever amount of hours that they want you to work and have it, right. you know, and don't complain and um, don't expect workplace protections or anything like it was horrible people were, i mean it's not as dangerous as back then like when you're in a factory and you might lose an arm but i mean you're basically just you're basically a techno surf at, at the end of the day something that's really interesting about this is a lot of this stuff goes full circle what i mean by that you can look at a bunch of stuff right for example in the peck article it says should these avant-garde economic um, indicators somehow be overlooked, more concrete clues, which have not been lost on urban planners and consultants, include quote-unquote authentic historical buildings, converted lofts, walkable mm -hmm. streets, plenty of coffee shops, art and live museum spaces, quote, organic and indigenous street culture, unquote, which you know, I think a lot of times is like that fake graffiti stuff, fake murals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A range of other typical features of gentrifying mixed use, mixed use inner urban neighborhoods. And this is the right. part that I thought was pretty interesting. Creatives want edge edgy cities, not edge cities. They contemptuously reject suburbia, the generica of chain stores and malls, 
and places that are oriented to children or churches. But the funny thing is, this is written in 2005 when the hipsters were young and just starting. But as hipsters are getting <laughs> older and starting families, and you now have like middle-aged hipsters and mm-hmm. hipsters with pop bellies, not bands, you know, and all right, this yeah. stuff. Um, you have you have basically these shopping centers that are glorified um, malls, basically. Like in Brooklyn, we have City Point. Mm-hmm. That's a glorified mall. There's a bunch of these things that are, they try to pretend that they're not malls. And they have businesses right. that, you know, disguise themselves as being something different. Like, okay, so this thing, City Point has Animal Draft House, which is a uh, hipster AMC. It's still a freaking mall. Right, and it's got... Yeah, it's gone national too, right? Like, like I, yeah, I've seen yep. an I've seen an Alamo Draft House off a like, all, pretty much all by itself in Virginia, like in a rural area, like right next to, to the totally. uh, to, to the mountains. Uh, that they're just sort of they're they're now being positioned as a signal of of a community's possibility, right? It's it's so so Neil Smith, uh, who was a, a student of of David Harvey, and and actually worked with. <laughs> with Richard Florida, uh, when R- Richard Florida was at Rutgers, and they, Neil Smith is is sort of the the person who uh, we consider the the for, for lack of a better word the 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 innovator of our modern definition of gentrification, right? Of thinking about it less as well, you know, people are just choosing where they want to live, and wealthy people are choosing these places, you know, and that kind of neoclassical, right? Like the individual choosing a place. Uh, is is a more worthy de- definition than thinking about it as a, a form of sort of production, right? It's not just what people are consuming; it's actually the production side of it. But but Neil Smith used to use the word cracking, and the idea with cracking was that there are some projects, and, and maybe Almo Draft House off a tra- <laughs> off the highway in Virginia is a bad one. But I, I think it suggests like how this con- this concept works is that if you can crack a neighborhood open like with a streetcar or with uh, a really nice park, right? Or with uh, some sort of intervention in the built environment that that becomes then a way of opening up that tough shell of decline, right? And that opens up then that tough shell of, of, of a kind of stagnant economy at Neil Smith, RIP. Uh, you know, I think that some of this, this debate though can end up actually distracting us from, from sort of what's really happening in these communities. So, you know, we're talking about you know, talent, tolerance, and technology, you know, we're not talking about institutions, right? We're not talking about public schools. We're not talking about, you know, bus systems. And so what happens when you're 23 years old and you move to Cleveland and, you know, you you live in an apartment and you have a bike and you kind of get by and then you decide you're going to get your master's because this is the 21st, <laughs> this is the 21st century labor account, labor market and you feel like you're obligated to do it. And then you meet somebody and you decide that you want to have kids and you look around and you go, well, Cleveland public schools are such and such, or the streets aren't paved. None of the interventions and investments that would have kept those people there are made to keep those people there. So what they end up doing is moving to a community, usually inner belt suburb, that has a density, that has a downtown, right? That has uh, a revenue base that they can maintain their built environment. When what you could have done from the beginning is recognize that, well, this might be a trendy hipster thing, that you know cities are important, that this particular built environment somehow says something about, about what, what it means to be in a city or what it means to live in a city, and said, look, uh, we should probably invest in our public school system. You know what? We should probably invest in, in our infrastructure. We should probably invest in housing. We should probably invest in public health. But rather than do that, they were hoping 
that there would be some measure of trickle from having all of that that potential talent migration into a city. And then when they leave, because guess what? People want the same things, right? They want to be able to trust their school and they want to, their, their school that they send their kids to and they want to be able to, to ride a bus or a train to work. If you don't have that, they're going to leave. And this is sort of how you're, you're starting to see like a different kind of flight uh, from, from parts of, of these, these American cities uh, like St. Louis, like Cleveland, where the realization is that I don't have the amenities that I need Tied with, in the case of Detroit or St. Louis, a large exodus of, of low-income and Black residents who are finally sort of sick of living in a place where there are no investments made on their behalf. And so the question then is, like, is gentrification a useful way to talk about the effects of these interventions if you are leaving out New York and D.C. and Boston and San Francisco, right? That there might be then a different process happening than simply, well, these talented creative knowledge workers come in and they buy property and our property taxes go up and that leads to displacement. And then the city's just going to be a bunch of overeducated white people who name their kids some variation of Braden or Graydon. And I don't know if that's really the, the, the what cities are foredoomed uh, to, to become. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's kind of funny, right, is um, some people do stay and do try to reform you know, the public school system yeah. or or try to get to have a civic engagement. But uh, A, it's kind of hard to because uh, you live such an atomized work life. Even if you work right, for right. a company, your life's kind of atomized because you don't really have a good union. You don't really have a good and, and you're or whatever. But your your coworkers tend to be pretty transient. Like, like even if you do, do decide to stay, there's enough people living that uh transient um, moving from cool city to cool city or escaping to the suburbs life that you don't really have enough people or enough community around you to find support in doing those things. So like, I mean, for absolutely. Example, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. So for example, like say you want to unionize your workplace, but uh, too many of your coworkers keep moving. You don't really have a lot of lifers. You don't really have a lot of people to get uh, relationships with you. Um, you want to, uh, introduce you want to improve your um public school system but a lot of people that lived around you just decided to move to the suburbs or move to a cheaper cool city like philly from from brooklyn you know and yeah there's with the, with the labor thing even if you wanted to call out like somebody might not be deliberately trying to be a scab it's just such a atomized yeah, world right, that yeah. this person is just a applying to a job and they need they need the bread they don't know that they're undercutting you you know like and yeah. they just take they just take the listing off of uh, indeed or something and whereas before like there was a sense of communities such that you had to cross like a picket line or whatever mm -hmm. through the internet how do you know you're crossing a picket line a lot of times you don't know right or you might not even be physically on site so you don't even know about the workplace politics right yep. you don't even know that that you're replacing somebody that might have been you know beloved by their co-workers or colleagues you are just somebody who had the right set of skills for the right set of and we can get in the whole skills thing and how that also like who gets to be creative is a is a big question right and it tends to be somebody with a four-year degree uh, in a very particular industry or, or expertise and not, you know, I, I would I would wager that somebody who knows how to, uh, you know, take a take a 2000, uh, you know, year 2000 SUV apart and put it back together is probably displaying much stronger <laughs> creative uh, uh, te uh, technique and, and, and uh, abilities than somebody who drew it in the first place, right? But I think that that 
that that question is really fascinating because in many ways, what we've done in our obviously very, very poor response to, to COVID in this country, and, and I live in De you know, Detroit where uh, for, for a little while, New York and Detroit were kind of sharing uh, the highest per capita uh, infection and, and uh, fatality rates. You know, what we've done is, is kind of finished off uh, the collective using the pandemic. Uh, and there's a couple of ways to think about that, right? One is, imagine how simple it is to go get a book from a library, right? Like, like the institutions that operate at the center of our lives, right? The institutions that are supposed to unite us, right? That are supposed to be ways of flattening uh, hierarchy, right? That, that like people can ride buses, that people can ride trains, that people can access these, these different publicly provided services and amenities, but they require that kind of map. Like they require people to go to them. And so how important is a library in 2000? I, I think libraries are incredibly important, but how important are they for the future of our country if, if it's easier for you to get a book from Amazon than it is for you to, to go to the library, right? And then how is that then actually restricting the public life that we, we really need in, 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 in this, this country, right? That, that appreciation of public life, that appreciation of the collective. How do we make decisions then that are not simply about the individual, about that, that private interest? And I think the issue is that so many, and I'm 34 years old, uh, I think that so many of, of people in, in sort of my vintage and my contemporaries have been told for so long the, the two parts of this, right? One is that the right thing to do when you are successful is to buy that single family home and probably get away from a city. And then you add on the creative class, which says, but also your set of skills and talents are incredibly important and will shape the global economy. That's a lot the process, but it's all about atomizing society, right? It's all about reducing it down and not looking out to the public, right? But believing that life really happens inside your home or inside your apartment, right? Or inside your condo, it doesn't take place outside of it. And the way then that the COVID response has actually exacerbated all of that, right? That it's made it basically impossible to imagine that there is a public life, that there's a collective life. And that as a result, then we can't even contest the things that we don't like about the life that we are living currently. Yeah. And you know, um, going back to this uh, passage from the Struggling with the Creative class article, uh, a lot of what it talks about, about contemptuously rejecting suburbia and the generica of chain stores and malls and places uh -huh. that are oriented to children or churches, you know, it's like um, all that has changed because the, had, there's a new branded generica. So instead of, instead of going to Dunkin' Donuts, there's a bunch of little um there's a bunch of little coffee shops that are now new chains like brooklyn roasting company every city mm -hmm. has has their thing you know uh if it's not starbucks yeah, it's brooklyn roasting company or a stumptown yeah. yeah stumptown at yeah, portland which is now everywhere or shinola from detroit yep uh right that that you can buy a fancy watch or a bike or a like 400 dollars basketball and you can do that in any uh, star city, superstar city in the United States, right? Yeah, I mean, I think right, we've entered into the the kind of uh, right the 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 mass manufactured patina. Yeah, right? yeah, it's like a patina that we all get to participate in. And again, the trick is to act like it's somehow more democratic because we are all able to experience those things while they're actually lining the pockets of a very specific group of of investors, right? Of people who've taken it. I mean, I. I was living in Portland when Stumptown was was sort of becoming a dominant fixture 
in that culinary scene. And it started to shift nationally, right? But I can promise you that the people who were behind that initial Stumptown Roaster in Portland, Oregon, were probably not working alone, right? That there was... (laughs) There were, there were investors, right? That there were these large-scale interests who liked the way that looked and knew that it was accessible and, and expandable across across the United States. Yeah, yeah like you're absolutely capitalism right. yeah. and corporatism co-ops everything. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the, right? Like it's always seeking new markets, right? It's always seeking a way to expand, right? To, to kind of trans, to, to, to over, overcome whatever barriers have been placed in front of it, right? And that barrier... Uh, is is usually linked to land uh, or or to labor, right? And so, if one of the barriers to expansion for capital, right, for the people who control these these the, basically are are the American economy, is that you know, well, workers want too much, uh, or workers want to go home, or workers want to be able to turn their computer off. One way to overcome that barrier is to say, well, you know, if you start work. Uh, at 11 o'clock and just kind of work whenever you want over the course of the day, you're going to have a much more balanced life. Uh, and, and you're going to, to feel like your, your, your life is more about, you know, the, the, you're integrating. Not that what that means is you potentially work 12 hours a day, right? Not that we've so blurred what it means to work and, and live that we've essentially found it inescapable to live a life where we can appreciate, <laughs> like we've made this, this notion of, of, of productivity so important that we've missed out on what's really, really important uh, yeah, in, yeah. in our if, communities. And, and yeah. And I'll say, okay, f- finish. I, I thought you were done. Oh, please continue. No, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'll say, <laughs> if work becomes play and play becomes work, all that does is make everything uh, indistinguishable. And there was this article, but I think it was, uh, her name is Anne Helen Peterson. I thought it was a good article about the, the millennial burnout. And how mm-hmm. the, the millennials burn out because um, this entrepreneurialization that Harvey talks about where we've gone from like the managerial model to the entrepreneurial model. And I think ironically, mm-hmm. we've even entrepreneurialized what remains of the managerial model. So even even the manager yeah. is basically an entrepreneur uh, in terms of the outlook of things, which confuses things. I think now it's very trendy to talk about the PMC, but even today's PMC has been entrepreneurialized. I think it's really the mm-hmm. entrepreneur that's a dominant um, paradigm. But yeah, when everyone's like a micro entrepreneur, you basically, your home life is your work life. Your play life is your work life. Your workplace mm-hmm. looks like a place to play and your home has a, has a workspace where you work all the time was sold as a way to free yourself is really just um a trap and it's just another way that everything just kind of resembles something you wanted to get away from but just mm-hmm. sexied up and sold to you as as bait instead of you know right yeah i think that uh i mean i don't i don't necessarily see it as much as i used to but there was in fact like branding for all of those those fancy pants like innovation districts uh, right around, you know, the, the, the early 2000 teens, uh, it was basically like live, work, play, right? Or, or loft districts that were focused on this notion of live, work, play. Here's, some modern, happening, here's some modern versions of that advertising. We work in, in Detroit. Uh, yeah. That they, but what ends up happening is like, how do you, like you don't have the luxury or the opportunity to escape thinking about yourself as, as a worker. Right, like it's it's been so ingrained in you that you have to produce because there's this. I mean, and I'm not saying I'm not trying to blame individuals for this. Actually, like I I, I am a, 
I will I will out myself as a neo-Marxist and I will out myself as somebody who cares about structure more than anything else. But I do think that it's important that that people have serious conversations with like their colleagues and their friends about, look, I understand that that this is you know where your life is, right? That your home and your work are the same thing, or that you you live in an innovation district, you know, in a in a bustling or maybe growing part of an industrial city, right? And you think, well, you know, maybe I've got my micro apartment and I can work at the coffee house downstairs. And when I want a break, we have a bar. Like that stuff isn't meant to give you. We, we've been thinking about this the wrong way. That those amenities have been have been treated as ways of escape. Right. Like we've we've allowed those ideas, these these like vastly basically overplanned, overprogrammed spaces to be ways of accessing things to basically exhale, right? To like let go of the stress. But what they've actually done is they're 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 sort of counterinsurgent, right? Like what they're doing is they are providing you, right, like the <laughs> the 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 sort of uh, bread and circuses that keep you basically uh, satisfied with right the, this system. Yeah, right? it's like if I can go get a craft beer in the same building that I work in and that I live in. Well, that's how I escape. Yep, yep, and and I could drink at the bar down the street that has yep. free Wi-Fi, and at the free Wi-Fi, I'm constantly checking my email, or I'll be at the bar and I'll open my laptop at the bar. I'll be sitting yeah. at a bar with the laptop. Make sure to make sure the bar has free Wi-Fi. So yeah, you know, you and, are the office. Yeah, and I'll be uh, surfing tinder or bumble on my phone uh at the same time so even my uh dating and courtship life has a type of work feel like, yeah. like i got put in my my one or two hours a day of um of swiping you know like everything has this kind of feel and what's kind of right. interesting about it is like everything feels all work feels like play all play feels like work you know uh, there's none, nothing spontaneous everything's regimented like you expect the uh coffee place uh, it's supposed to be like this third space now, you know. Oh, it's not right, it's yeah. not work and it's not home. But when you when you get there, um, you're basically yeah. working on a laptop all day. It's all work. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's all work. Your play is work. It's, and 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 um, you socialize at. It, it's just all very. It just genericizes your life. But I mean, you don't. All this stuff you're supposed to escape from just has become repackaged as a hipster way. So, um, you know, instead of Dunkin' Donuts, like you said, we have all these local coffee places. Mm -hmm. Instead of Baskin Robbins, you have like Ample Hill. Okay, that makes it better. You have, um, and they have these repetitive stores that appear in all these places. And there's two types. There's your city brand, you know, which mm -hmm. you, know, you see a couple of them, you know, in your city. And then you tell yourself, okay, uh, I'm shopping local, you know. But there's also your national brands now, like, you know, Stumptown. Um, or Ikea or all these things that are kind of more hipster friendly but then you tell yourself oh but this thing has artisanal stuff or small batch things or fair trade oh oh, that makes it okay then you know I'm not just buying into this huge mega corporation because mm -hmm. 50 cents uh, per every $5 spent goes toward uh, migrant feminist women in Guatemala who are running a yeah. food collective there. Okay, that that makes it fine. This vanilla at Van Leeuwen was sourced from this third world village in uh, Madagascar that they're investing in this micro technology to help them clean their water. This, this is all these weird stories that are yeah. formed to just hide that this is the same 
old uh, thing. This is still a, a mega corporation with yeah. no with no union with no unionized workers that is you know eating up the tapestry, and they're even finding even more elevated things to hide with this stuff. Like for example, this article about struggling with the creative class from 2005, and they're talking about stuff that. Um, the Richard Florida model is supposed to be fighting against, like, for example, um, stadiums and uh, all these and right. attracting corporations. You know, like, hey, forget about attra- forget about building stadiums and and that waste of space. Forget about trying to attract uh corporations and corporate investments. Let's get individuals instead. Instead, what we have is, hey, let's get. Now that we have the creatives here, let's get creative stadiums. Uh, look at Barclays Center. <laughs> this is a hipsterized stadium. Right, yeah, with, with the fake rust. Yeah, yeah, with the fake rust. Hey, let's get uh, hip corporations. Uh, let's try to get uh, Amazon down here. Let's try to get uh, Google right. down here. So it's like you've come back, I mean, I think, you come back yeah, to I mean, where you were anyway. That you know. I mean, you, you've made a great point. So, so there's uh, the Little Caesars. <laughs> Every time I say it, I laugh. Uh, Little Caesars Arena, uh, which is where the Detroit Pistons and the Red Wings play in downtown Detroit. And it is owned by the Illich family, uh, the, who, who are uh, the very wealthy, I mean, billionaire family. Uh, Mike Illich passed away, I think, last year or maybe two years ago. But it is, it is a product of, of the same old economic development pattern where states and municipalities basically find ways to build packages so that they can attract uh, that kind of investment from a bi- like basically a billionaire, right? From a from a billionaire family, so that they don't have to compete with the suburbs that have all of the vacant, right? All this farmland that they can convert, or maybe they have parking lots next to a, a mall that would be a great setup. But if you go down there, what, what's what's so striking about it is on the outside of of the LCA, the Little Caesars Arena. There are the names of all the corporations that also have offices in it. So it was built to be the centerpiece of a new live, work, play uh, development uh, called the district. So the thinking was that that you would be able to use the stadium as the way to get that public financing, and then you can brand it using the attract like by attracting those 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 multinationals or those tech giants. And then that's going to be what spurs on ultimately the residential development so that those, you know, that the, the stadium then becomes basically like a substrate for the creative city. So instead of thinking about them as separate currents of urban development, the really savvy uh, investors, uh, financiers, rentiers have figured out how to actually combine them, that one benefits the other. Now we can talk about like the, basically the Illiches haven't Fixed, haven't haven't repaired or renovated any of the buildings that they were accumulating for the previous decade. Uh, they're all basically husks, uh, except for a new structure called the Mike Illich School of Business, which is this kind of absurdist glass structure next to the LCA where you can learn how to start and and own your your own version of Little Caesars. I'm not sure what what his business fa- his family's acumen is in terms of business, but right that like they figured out that. The same urban development stuff still works. It's just how do you sprinkle and integrate in this idea of of the the creative person of the creative of the creative and tech industries? Yeah, put in some mason jars. Put in you know. Yeah, absolutely. Some, some I mean, there's a there's bikes. a fancy there's a fancy Little Caesars in the the so that first floor of the Little Caesars Arena has a, has a bunch of different uh, sort of businesses in it that are only accessible 
we're only really accessible if you are, are in fact, uh, attending a show, which nobody is attending. But there's one called Mike's Pizza Place, uh, Pizza Palace. And it's just, it's basically Little Caesars, except they can charge you $20 for a personal pizza. This is where Kid Rock had a, had a bar and restaurant mm. called Kid Rock's Made in the USA, uh, where you can get a hams for $7, or you can get a chicken shawarma, which is like a big thing in Detroit, for like $14. Uh, so like this, this, these are sort of viewed as ways of, they're not representative of Detroit, right? They're not. What they are is their ways of gesturing to a future of Detroit, right? Where where all the all the conflict about uh, tax foreclosure and mortgage foreclosure, about policing, about an inability to invest in public schools and infrastructure goes away because you're able to present this unified front of a major urban development, uh, this pizza place, this this grocery store, uh, and and this Kid Rock bar. I don't think Kid Rock owns it anymore. I think he he dropped out because he doesn't like that people. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, scolded him for supporting Trump. Uh, so I think he's actually backed out of, of, his, of his business there. But I think what's interesting about this is we spent a lot of, like one of the other tricks of the creative class that I don't think gets enough attention is that because we spend all this time focused on, on like, well, they're just trying to bring in like white hipsters. They're just trying to bring in like the, the next startup person. They're just trying to attract them with, with these restaurants and, and the streetcar. What it does is it, it, it completely conceals what's actually happening in a city like Detroit or what's actually happening in a city like St. Louis, where if you look at most neighborhoods in, in, in the city of Detroit 12, 15 years ago, they were in a much better position in terms of their built environment, right? That they were much more coherent. They had a much stronger, stable built environment. Now, yes, it was basically overled leverage with all this mortgage debt and, and, and sort of home refinancing debt. And that was usually a product of a racist system. But thinking about like the quality of those neighborhoods and then thinking about downtown Detroit now or midtown Detroit now, and then usually somebody coming in from the suburbs who will say a, a variation of the following. I really like what they've done down here. It's been a long time since Detroit was a place where you could feel comfortable. But we've seen a, like that, that debate about gentrification, that debate about the creative class has actually hidden the processes at play that have made the city more difficult to live in for the vast majority of, of its residents, right? You can look at St. Louis, Detroit, Cleveland. I mean, the same story applies again and again in, in these Midwestern cities. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. Be good.